You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. And today we're going to take a look at the case of Brian Wells. Um, if you are a Netflix true crime junkie like I am, uh, you've probably seen the documentary about this case called Evil Genius. Um, and for the most part, it follows Marjorie Deal Armstrong, but we're going to focus in on the actual case of Brian Wells today. Um, but you'll hear Marge's name come up a lot as we're discussing this. Um, I actually found this case first through BuzzFeed Unsolved because I'm also obsessed with that show. Um, and they, they covered this and I didn't even realize this was in PA. So when I found out it was, I decided to talk about it. So, uh, Brian Wells was a 46 year old pizza delivery man in Erie when he entered a PNC bank with a collar bomb strapped around his neck and he robbed the bank with the threat of detonation of the bomb. Of course, law enforcement did get involved, but in some ways they were too late with their involvement. Now, a bit of a warning here, not just this next part, but bits and pieces throughout this entire story get very visually graphic. Um, so just kind of a heads up there. While waiting for the bomb squad to arrive, the bomb that was clipped around Wells's neck actually detonated. It killed him near instantly, and it ended up changing the way that this robbery would be viewed through law enforcement eyes. It left a lot of questions lingering. How could a criminal just blow himself up after robbing a bank? Was it a desperate attempt to avoid punishment for the robbery because he had been caught? Was it a final step in a plot to either buy his way out of debt or die? Or was it some sort of setup with an innocent victim? We're going to start out by just talking about Wells himself. Uh, Brian Douglas Wells was born on November 15, 1956 in Warren, PA. Warren is in northwestern PA. It's pretty close to Erie. It's up in that northern area pretty close to the New York state line uh, within a decent drive to Erie. And his parents were named Rose and Harold Wells. His father, Harold, served during the Korean War. Um, we don't really know too much about Brian, but we do know that he dropped out of high school when he was 16 and that he was working as a pizza delivery driver at the time of his death. And he had been working for this particular pizza shop for a couple years pretty good employee, always showed up. Um, he actually only ever missed one day of work and it was because his cat had died and he had to kind of take care of uh, that whole situation. And I think that day he even just came in late. He was like a delivery driver. So he was going from a shop out to places, but I love the idea of like drive up pizza. I think that's fantastic. Um, in the Netflix docuseries, Evil Genius that I mentioned earlier, uh, Brian's landlord and neighbor named Linda Payne gave some more information about who Brian was just as a person, kind of his personality. She explained that he was really even tempered. And if he ever got excited, he would kind of dance around a little bit, which I can totally relate to because my best friend and I are both like that. And my husband will refer to me by my best friend's name 
whenever I do my happy dance, when something exciting happens. Um, he also had three cats that he loved and who were always inside. Sometimes he would take his mother to the movies and if there were free concerts in the area, he would take his mother and her friends. He also really enjoyed scavenger hunts. Apparently there were scavenger hunts in the daily newspaper and it had clues that would lead you to different landmarks within Erie County. Now he would try to finish these hunts every day and one day he got really close, but he didn't get the key. I guess each scavenger hunt had a key that like, I guess the first one to find it quote unquote won the scavenger hunt. Um, but he got really close one day, but he didn't get the key. He was really disappointed. Um, and as we go on through this case, you guys will hear that there's kind of a scavenger hunt aspect to the crime that happened. And I have to wonder if maybe he was chosen because of his love for scavenger hunts. Um, Linda also added that, quote, he might be easy to influence, unquote, which kind of makes me think that he may have been chosen for that reason as well. So there's a little bit more background that we need to go into before we dive into the case itself and what actually happened. We have a few key players that we need to touch on. Uh, the first one is the woman that I mentioned earlier, Marge Armstrong. Her full name is Marjorie Eleanor Deal Armstrong. Uh, Marge had a history of mental illness and was very close to some very suspicious deaths, um, including that of her ex-boyfriend, whom she claimed she shot in self-defense, but there's a little bit of uncertainty as to the legitimacy of that claim because he was shot six times while laying on the couch. Uh, she did go to trial for this murder, but through a claim of self-defense, she was able to escape sentencing. Um, in fact, one of her friends tells a story where uh, this friend and Marge had a conversation where Marge told the friend, I shot that mother effer six times and I got away with it, unquote. And the friend said, well, how'd you do that? And Marge responded, oh, self-defense. Um, which to me sounds like a confession that it was not self-defense, but I mean, double jeopardy. So she can't go back to trial for it at that point. I'd love to know more about that trial and just what the specific defense was and how they tried to give evidence that it was actually self-defense because it seems insane that that would seem legitimate. Yeah, I agree. Um, I have the same desire to dive a little bit further into that, but given how long and convoluted the current case that we're talking about is, I didn't want to add more to it. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely curious about that because unless he also had a gun in his hands, I can't see how shooting someone on the couch six times is self-defense. Marge also had a husband who died after falling and hitting his head on a coffee table and a boyfriend who died by suicide by hanging. Now, when the husband died, the one that hit his head on the coffee table, she actually sued the hospital. Um, from my understanding, he hit his head and was taken to the hospital and then died at the hospital. So she sued the hospital, apparently won that lawsuit, and then also asked for a piece of his leg bone in the event that science ever advanced to a point of being able to clone someone. So she could clone 
this husband because she said she loved him so much she wanted to be able to clone him leg bone are you kidding me yeah and i don't know that much about like cloning i know they've cloned animals um like sheep and goats and stuff but i'm not sure how they do it i think bone marrow is part of it which i guess would make sense for keeping part of his leg bone but i don't know it just seems weird like if something happened to my husband i wouldn't just like want a chunk of his leg bone sitting in my house no i don't know she seems like a very strange person that's trying to get away with this and seem innocent and she's thinking what would a normal person ask for if her husband died suddenly and she just has no frame of reference (laughs) i mean she's quoted as having said quote i've won a lot of lawsuits i'm not a stupid woman unquote so I, I have no words. I have gibberish and noises. No words. Well, I just want to say my mom, she had met somebody. She So she was in, I guess, nursing homes or homes for people that uh, needed more than, you know, just a check in here and there. And she was dating this guy and both of them were paralyzed. So he had, I guess, like a cart thing that he'd go around in and he would specifically uh, drive his cart in front of cars to then sue them and get money. And to me, it was the stupidest thing ever, but he always got money. So to him, it's like, well, I'm already like paralyzed. So I want the money. (laughs) So continuing on with a little bit more about Marge, um, when she was questioned about her involvement with this case related to Brian Wells, she's quoted as having said, quote, I am not some evil genius who was greedy and wanted some guy to rob a bank for me. I didn't have anything to do with the GD crime, unquote. Um, So that's where the name for the documentary comes from, because it's called Evil Genius. Um, But, you know, she straight up says, you know, well, I'm not involved. I'm not involved. I don't need anyone to do this for me. So... We're going to go a little bit deeper into the details of that day, as well as some details of another crime that she was associated with in a little bit. But for now, the main point that we need to know about her is that, or I guess I should say the main points we need to know about her are that she has a pretty shady past. She has multiple mental health diagnoses, including bipolar disorder, narcissism, mania, and pressured speech. At age 23, she went to a therapist claiming something was wrong with her mind. And according to reports from her psychological evaluations, quote, she was most sad about her inability to have close and gratifying relationships, unquote. Because she kills them all. Fair enough. What is pressured speech? So I'm pretty sure, and someone can, can Google and check it, but I'm pretty sure it's like when you speak with a very adamant tone, like um, you're very forceful, you're very adamant about something, um, it's often associated with like mania, which she was diagnosed with. Um, Just kind of that total belief that I am in the right, this is correct, these are the facts, um, and just being very adamant about what you're saying which falls in line with her saying you know i didn't have anything to do with this crime 
over and over and over again. Um, Why does that sound like my husband? He thinks he's always right. (laughs) I think that's every husband, but according to Google, it is linked to a sign of mania and that they kind of speak so rapidly that people don't really understand and that it's like they're incoherent to what they're saying. Okay. So I did see that she also had a severe personality disorder, but I couldn't find specifics. So I don't know if it was like borderline. I don't know if it was disassociative. I'm not sure. Um, But there was some sort of personality disorder going on as well. Deal was described as being nasty and controlling. She thought the world revolved around her and thought she could get away with anything. And that description actually comes from one of her best friends. Uh, She was also incredibly intelligent, which I think we see in a lot of these sort of cases. Um, She graduated at the top of her high school class. She did graduate with a bachelor's and master's degree. And she completed various courses that were worth another three degrees, but she never actually finished any other programs. So she would claim to have the education value of five degrees, but she only physically had two completed degree programs. Um, She did pass in 2017 from breast cancer while she was incarcerated. Um, Part of the incarceration was for crimes related to the bank heist, but not for the murder of Wells, um, despite declaring that she was innocent until she died on those heist charges. So that's a little bit about Marge. We're going to hear a lot more about her as we continue. Um, But the next big player that we want to talk about is Bill Rothstein. Um, His full name is William Ansel Rothstein, um, and he goes by Bill. So he was a former partner of Marge's, and he had a pretty dark past. In fact, Bill and Marge were actually engaged two separate times, but then ended their relationship to remain friends, um, which kind of seems like she was holding the cards, which kind of seems to fit with what we know from her. Um, You know, he proposed twice. She said yes twice, but then she broke it off and he still stuck around. Um, He at one point was implicated for accessory to murder when he provided a gun to a friend who used it to kill a romantic rival. Um, He did not serve time for that crime, however, because he was granted full immunity for providing that testimony that ended up catching the friend that did actually commit the murder. Um, Bill was also very intelligent. In fact, when he met with one of the investigators named Jerry Clark from the FBI, he told the FBI agent that he, meaning Bill, was the smartest one in the room for their interview. I can't imagine having the gall to be in an interview with an FBI agent and just walk in and say, hey, just so you know, I'm the smartest one in this room. And what's kind of funny is the FBI agent was like, yeah, my wife tells me that every day. That's fine. Can we talk now? And I just love that. I think that's hysterical. Um, So he did eventually report Marge to the police for a crime unrelated to Wells' case, but that occurred within the same month. So this is all happening in August of 2003. We're going to continue to talk about Bill throughout this episode, Um, but later on in life, he was diagnosed with cancer, and he died in 2004 at age 60 from the cancer that he had. 
So I watched that evil genius documentary a couple times, actually, and he's a really weird guy. Like, I mean, just so weird. And it it just seems like he and Marge and eventually some of the other players in this were just so far removed from reality. Like, this was just their whole fantasy world. They did not participate in reality. So I want to talk a little bit here about Marge and Bill as a couple. We mentioned that they were engaged a couple times. Um, Now, Marge's best friend described Marge as being very intense. This same person also said that Bill was always somewhere in the background of Marge's life because he could relate to her intellectually in a way that many people couldn't. Um, Marge herself described Bill as being very perverted. She said that they were a virgin when they got together. She was a virgin when they got together, and he just always wanted to do perverted things. She described that as him wanting anal and oral sex and that he was very obsessed with her legs. Kind of what I was thinking. Like, I don't see that as a huge perversion, but maybe for her when they met, that was was a big perversion. Um, she was definitely saying that when she was trying to convince people that he was guilty of things that she was being charged for. So I'm not sure how legitimate those claims were, um, but, you know, that's what she claimed about him. Marge's best friend also said that, quote, Bill wanted Marge to get rid of Jim and marry him meaning get rid of Jim and marry Bill. Um, Jim is the man that Marge was currently dating. And we're going to talk about him a little bit later on. Um, He's not involved with this crime, but he is important in a different way to this case overall. Um, There's two more small players that their names are just going to come up. Uh, We don't really know too much about them. I probably could find more, but they're not as important, but just good names to know. One was Floyd Arthur Stockton Jr., and he went by the nickname Jay. Um, Jay was Bill's roommate. He moved out of Bill's house the day after the heist, and he told Marge that it was because of the Wells case. Again, that's if we're believing what Marge says. Um, He was already wanted on charges from other states, one of which included rape of a disabled teenage girl, uh, which is not cool. He did serve time for that. He actually served more time for that than some other people did for murder charges. Um, But yeah. So because he knew he had committed that crime, he fled from Bill's house. Eventually, the FBI did find him. He was cleared for the crimes that occurred related to the Wells case. But like I said, he did end up serving time. Um, Not that it makes it better, uh, but he fully admitted to the rape and accepted the sentence that he was given, served it in full. Um, Again, does not make it better. I'm never going to say that a perpetrator of a sex crime served enough time because I think they should all be in jail forever. But... um, I mean, at least he fessed up to it and didn't make that family go through trial. So just what the fuck? <laughs> like who who does that to a disabled child? What a piece of shit. 
just like Amanda's ex. Um, so the last person that we're going to talk about right now is Ken Barnes, uh, Kenneth Barnes. He goes by Ken. Uh, Ken was a fishing buddy of Marge's, and he was also a well-known crack dealer. He was always around Marge because they were good friends. Um, he's going to come up a few times in this story. He's not a hugely important player, but he is involved. Um, he wound up dying in 2019 in prison on charges unrelated to this case. Um, he had kind of a hot mess life, so he did have some other charges um, that he wound up in, in prison for. He sounds like a pretty well-rounded guy. He liked fishing and uh, crack. Crack. And as we will find out, sex workers. So, I mean, solid, well-rounded. That really rounds him out, yeah. Yeah. This episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by Coco Counseling Center in Hershey, PA, two blocks off of Chocolate Ave. Coco Counseling Center is a Christ-based counseling center specializing in therapy for individuals, couples, and families. Mental health is important to us here at KCC, and great therapists are the first step in seeking treatment for mental health. Coco Counseling Center provides just that. Highly qualified therapists who are real people and who have experienced the real world. For more information about appointments, insurance coverage, and areas of expertise, check out CocoCounselingCenter.com. That's C-O-C-O-A CounselingCenter.com or call 717-298-1366. Okay, so on to the actual bank heist now that we're like half an hour into the episode. Um... This whole robbery plot allegedly started because Marge needed fast cash. Marge and Bill were together at Ken's house, and Ken was there as well. And the three of them devised a plan where Ken would kill Marge's father, Harold Deal, so that she could get her inheritance from him because she needed money, wanted money, whatever. She was mad because when her mother died, she did not get her inheritance. Her father was a millionaire who was giving money to churches and friends and neighbors. Like, um, he tells a couple different stories in the documentary. Um, but, you know, things like the neighbor would have a car breakdown and they were down on their luck. So he would pay for repairs. Um, you know, like he was just a, a good guy that had money and wanted to help people with the money that he had. Um, she felt like he was giving away her inheritance, which, like, no, because it's his money. And while you can be written into someone's will, inheritance itself does not actually exist until that person dies. Like, you can't call it your inheritance while he's alive because it's just his money. It's, I, I don't know, that... Well, yeah, of course. So she just needed to to chill a little bit. But Harold, who was not murdered as a part of this plot, um, and as I said, was interviewed on the Evil Genius documentary, later told investigators and reporters that he had actually written Marge completely out of his will years before any of this happened because of a combination of her mental state and some previous actions and kind of some of the fishy things that we've mentioned before, like these random boyfriends and husbands that are dying in all these mysterious ways. And basically he didn't trust her and he didn't want to leave her the money. 
Um, it was just so. kind of sad when he was talking in the documentary because he just he seemed just sad about it that she had turned out this way. Yeah, yeah, he definitely did. Um, and I think that's in episode three of the four um, for anyone that specifically wants to find that section. Um, but don't hold me to it. Google will probably know better than I will. Um, but back to this initial hit plot, Ken agreed to kill Marge's father so that she could get the inheritance if she would pay him $200,000. So that's where the robbery comes in. Now, as they're discussing this plan, a local prostitute, and I use that term because it's the term she used for herself. Um, typically, I would use sex worker, but she referred to herself as a prostitute, so I'm going to use that. Um, her name is Jessica Hoopsick, and she walked into the house as they're devising this plan. In an interview that she filmed for Evil Genius, she revealed uh, some important information. Um, she said she walked in on the conversation about the bank robbery and they asked her to find a gopher to put a fake bomb on to rob the bank. They offered her $5,000 to give her the name of this person. So she agreed to it. But a couple days later, she decided she needed the money really fast because she was coming down off of a three day high and she didn't want the high to end. She wanted money so she could get more drugs so that she could keep the high going. Um, and instead of the money, Ken offered her some crack so she could keep the high going if she would give him the name of this gopher that she knew. And she gave them Brian Wells's name and then also gave them his work schedule and knowing what he did, if they called the pizza shop while he was working and asked for a delivery, they knew that he would be the one to deliver it and that they could, you know, kind of take him, um, so the heist was supposed to happen during the second week of August, but Marge couldn't be there and she needed to be there for this to happen. And we'll talk about why she couldn't be there a little bit later. Um, Jessica says that Brian was truly 100% innocent and had no involvement. And just kind of a little added piece. I don't know if it's happy or sad, but she gave birth shortly after the heist and is convinced that Brian is the father. And apparently the child looks a lot like Brian and um, they were good friends, but also Brian was a frequent customer. So um, she is thinking that the child that she had was Brian's child. I don't know if she ever did any like paternity testing or anything, if they have any of his DNA anywhere um, to confirm it. But at this point, everything that I've gone through so far seems fairly cut and dry. So, like, why are we half an hour into a cold cases podcast talking about Brian Wells when it seems like this is all pretty much planned out? We know who the key players are. Uh, clearly, these people must be responsible for his death. It must be solved. <laughs> but nothing is ever quite as it seems. The big questions that we need to focus on are what role did Brian truly play in the robbery? Was he in for a cut of it? Was he an innocent bystander that got involved? Is Jessica's story true or is it just another lie in this whole convoluted story? When we get to the end, we'll kind of talk about those different sides, but uh, we're going to start breaking down the timeline of events from that day in August 2003. 
So at 1.30 p.m., a call comes into the pizza shop where Wells worked. The call was made from a payphone at a nearby Shell gas station. Um, and all of the addresses, or I guess not all of them, but at least most of the addresses that we talk about in this case are along Peach Street. And this Shell station is included in that. The Shell station was on Peach Street. So Peach Street is like the main street in Erie, just for reference. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I didn't even like look at a map or anything, but that makes sense because it was where the gas station was, the bank was close by, um, and a lot of places that we talk about are either on Peach Street or described as being just off of Peach Street. So that yeah, like makes sense. The Splash Lagoon, um, which a lot of people know as like the water park and the movie theater and everything, pretty much everything is off of Peach Street, which is right off of I-90. So whenever this phone call came in, the owner of the pizza shop answered, but they couldn't understand what the caller was saying. So the owner handed the phone over to Wells, who interpreted that they wanted two pepperoni and sausage pizzas delivered to 8631 Peach Street, um, which was not very far from the pizzeria. It's interesting about um, the first person answer the phone not understanding what the caller was saying. Because, I mean, they may have done that on purpose so that they would hand the phone to Brian. But also we were just talking about pressured speech and how um, that can be super hard to understand. So just throwing it out there. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, a lot of people in different articles and in, like, the documentaries and stuff did mention that, you know, maybe Wells was in on the heist. And so that's why, you know, the person was like, rrr, 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 so that they would handle, handle, hand the phone over to Brian. But it would also make a lot of sense if, you know, it was Marge making that call, if she had that pressured speech, it was just really difficult to understand. The owner of the pizza shop was also Italian. Um, so that may have, played a role as well but that i mean that's a really good point grace so i can't be the only one that thinks that like wasn't there a movie where if you bought you ordered like extra anchovies that they would send a stripper to your house i know there was a movie in the 80s that dealt with that so i'm wondering if that had anything to do with it like a code yeah, it was like you order extra anchovies and you would get a stripper to your house. So, um, like I said, they had it delivered to that address on Peach Street. Um, the address actually led to a transmission tower. Some sources that I found said it was a TV transmission tower and others said that it was a radio transmission tower. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure. But either way, it wasn't like a house um, it was just the transmission tower building that had the actual address. Um, so Wells delivered the pizza to that address and was confronted by the group. And that's when the collarbone was placed around his neck. Um, Buzzfeed Unsolved also mentioned that collar bombs have been known to be used by Colombian drug lords. Not super important here, but... I'm random, and my ADD decided that was a good fact to throw in here. So there we go. Um, now, one side of the story says that it was supposed to be a fake bomb and that Wells knew that there was going to be a fake bomb. 
Uh, but then they surprised him by giving him a real bomb instead of a fake one. Uh, if you remember, Jessica Hoopsick did mention in her interview that she was told that a fake bomb would be used. And that could be where this idea of Wells maybe agreeing to it came from. Um, so it's possible that originally it was thought to be fake, but uh, we know now that it definitely was not fake. I feel like surprise isn't a great word for that. Instead of being surprised, he was ambushed. Um, now, the other side of the story says that he knew nothing about the plot, so the real bomb was obviously unexpected because you don't go delivering pizzas thinking, hey, someone's going to clip a bomb around my neck today. Um, now, according to this perspective, in order to get the bomb around him, he had to have been held at gunpoint because like, he had his own vehicle, he was on foot, they were in a wooded area. Um, you know, he could have run, he could have gotten in his car. So there is this idea that there had to be a gun involved somewhere. Uh, there is a story that Bill Rothstein had a gun and shot it in the air to show Wells, like, hey, I've got this gun, I can shoot it, it's loaded. Um, witnesses in the area do confirm that they heard a gunshot, but we don't know for sure that it was tied to this incident or whether it tells us Wells' involvement or lack thereof um also erie is not exactly a giant city so it's quite possible that someone just had a gun i mean it it happened so um whether he was in on the plot or not we do know that he was told to provide the story that this bomb was forced around his neck at gunpoint by three black men and that they also provided him with a cane shotgun that he carried into the bank with him. Um, we do have pictures of the cane shotgun and the collar bomb on our blog post for this episode. Um, it, I mean, the, the shotgun looks like a cane. Like, it just is straight down to the ground, and it even has a little stopper at the end, and then it's curved where his hand would go. Um, so you can check out those pictures on the blog post on uh, kccpod.com. So that was around 1.30 that that all started. Then by 2.30, Wells arrived at the bank, um, and he was following a list of instructions that was nine pages long. He was described by witnesses as having that cane and a shoebox under his shirt. If you check out the images that we have on the blog post or the Netflix docuseries, or just do like a Google image search for his name, um, you'll see why that description was given. It really is what it looked like. Uh, the bomb was kind of like a handcuff around the neck that fit his neck, obviously not wrist size. And then it had what kind of looked like a shoebox that sat on his chest. And then there was a large shirt with the word guess written on it um, that was put on top of the bomb. And it wasn't like a guess brand shirt that was bought. Like it was a white shirt that had been sharpied to say, to have the word guess on it. Um, Cause at first I thought maybe it was like the guest company or whatever, but it was legit written in like black marker on the shirt. Um, so Per the instructions, he entered the bank quietly and he slid a note to the teller. And the note said, 
quote, gather employees with access codes to vault and work fast to fill bag with $250,000. You only have 15 minutes, end quote. However, um, to get into the vault, the teller needed to access it with somebody else. And I guess whoever they needed to have there to get into the vault wasn't there. Um, speaking from my teller experience, when I worked at banks, um, there's really not much in a teller drawer. And I think I talked about that when we talked about the Wendy Eaton case. Um, but when I worked at the bank, we literally had to like sell and buy money from the vault. If we ended up with too much money in our till, we had to sell it to the vault, which just meant like getting it out of our till and locking it in the vault so that if something ever happened, you know, we would only have a couple thousand in our drawer, not like 20,000 in our drawer. I know my, my partner works at a bank and he's been at multiple blank banks. They don't even have that much in their drawers. I think it's like a thousand and under. And if they do need to go into the vault, they do need to have another person. And it's like a whole entire like procedure. And I know, uh, my partner has, uh, keys to his bank. He's a manager and they like, can't even open up the bank if there's not another person there. It's for like security reasons. And I mean, there's just tons of reasons why for examples like this, why they have to be so stringent. And half the time I'm just like, they could, it'll take like an extra hour or something to close up because if their cash uh, registers do not um, balance at the end of the night, it is a huge problem. Cause that means one, your employee stole two, you gave out the wrong amount. Um, so it's either situation isn't good. And it's just, I don't know why people think going into like some stores and banks that they're just going to get tons of money. Cause like you live, you learn, they're not dumb anymore. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, I know like we had a limit and if, our manager came over to do a random audit and we had to be audited at least once a month. If they came over for an audit and our drawer was over, I think it was, if it was over 8,000, like we got docked points on our audit. And I mean, I was in a very high, um, high traffic bank and we had a lot of business accounts. So our limit was a little bit higher. Um, but like, we were not allowed to have, like, we were supposed to keep it somewhere between four and five, just because we did a lot of transactions and had a lot of money coming in and out. So our limit was a little bit higher for, I know for my partner, he, they have, um, they get bonuses and they have goals and not only do they have goals, but they have certain things like you just said, like if they get caught having too much in their till, it can like ding against them and it could potentially lower your bonus. So people really have to kind of be on top of it. And he is in a very, I guess, affluent neighborhood and a lot of money. And so someone always is there that can get into the tilt, um, not the tilt, the vault so that they can put money away. Um, because it's a problem because if they were to get robbed, they'd have that money. And, and honestly, he always, he tells his employees, like your life isn't worth it. This is a bank. It, you know, do not try to be a hero. Let them have the money. Let them take what you have. Like at this point, it's not your problem to solve. Oh yeah. That's what we were always taught to. Um, there was a point where our branch got robbed. I wasn't in yet that day. I mean, someone came like we opened at I think seven and they were in the bank at like seven Oh five. So there was literally one teller in the lobby and one in the drive through. Um, and 
I mean, she like didn't have a whole lot in her drawer, so they didn't make out with a whole lot because she just didn't have money in the drawer. But I mean, it's, it's something that like you're trained for, you know, if someone comes in and says, you know, Hey, I've got a gun, a bomb, a whatever, and I'm going to inflict harm if you don't give me this money. You know, we were always trained, like, hand over the money because, you know, we can recover a loss or mark a loss, but we can't, I mean, you know, the the common phrase, like, you can't get a new you. I mean, it's it's true. And that's... Another thing is that I guess some people don't think about, or maybe just because he's worked at the bank, he's seen it more, but there's other ways to steal money from a bank that are less conspicuous that takes longer time to actually catch on to and they get in trouble for it which is mm-hmm. sucks because like it's really hard to tell they're not investigators they're not police like if you're providing like a solid driver's license and you know bank information you can't tell if it's stolen but like cash yeah. and checks that are stolen bouncing checks i mean there's just tons of ways that people can get money from banks i mean you'll eventually get caught but you're not going to get like police there in five minutes because you're like holding people up right but i don't know it's just right crazy someone took advantage of our um debit card for the business and they were buying gift cards for google for like 25 dollars a piece and like ten thousand dollars worth Wow, well, I hear that Jeez. for people to know if their bank account works, they will try at least three small hits to see if it'll go through, and then they'll try bigger purchases. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of anyone doing multiple purchases in $25 amounts. It's usually like a couple small, yeah. and then they hit it big to see if it will go through. Yeah, and these were all like $25, $35. It wasn't a big amount, but like I went to buy airline tickets and it was like an act of God to get it to go through, but they could spend $25 50 times and it was okay. Huh. Probably because it wasn't flagged for a big purchase amount. Yeah. That's insane. Interesting. Yeah. I know. Um, last bank comment for me. Um, I know like when I worked at a bank, like I said before, we had to have a teller and a member of management to go into the vault, but we also had to change the vault codes constantly. And like we would go in and we had a key to get through like the first door of the vault, which just took you to safe deposit boxes. But to get into the second door, we had to have a second key and then to actually open what the cash was kept in we had three separate vaults that stored cash and each of those three vaults had two separate codes that had to be put in. So like you had to have two people to open them. You had to have both keys to even get back that far. And we always had people there that could get into it because we never knew if we were going to get a huge company deposit that we had to put away or if we were going to have, you know, like Garda came all the time just to take or Brinks or I think it was Garda, but whoever it was, um, So, like, we always had people there that could get into it, but it was, like, you had to get a member of management, and then while you're in the vault, all you would have to do is say, like, hey, the reason we're in the vault is because this person is trying to rob me, and then we had, like, a 911 emergency button or whatever in the vault that we could push so it wouldn't raise suspicion to the person waiting on the cash. So, like, like Chelsea said, banks are getting so much smarter because you live and you learn, and you know, you can't get away with this kind of stuff anymore. 
or you do for a very short amount of time and then you're caught. Um, but this teller couldn't get the $250,000 that they wanted. So she basically gave what was in her till, which was $8,702, which for 2.30 PM, That's a I lot. mean, kind of makes sense for me. Um, because it was probably right before she was getting ready to get rid of money before afternoon deposits came in. Um, but still $8,700 is not quite the 250 that they were looking for. Um, so that was at 2.30 that he walked in. At 2.38, a witness called 911 stating that there was a man leaving a bank with, quote, a bomb or something wrapped around his neck, unquote. Uh, this was the first 911 call that went out for this incident, but there were more afterwards. Uh, witnesses also noted that Wells was very nonchalant while he was standing in line. And you can actually see it if you watch the security footage. Um, he walked into the bank, waited in line, grabbed a dum-dum off the counter, and was just like really nonchalant. And once he had the money, he walked out of the bank swinging the cane and the bag of money looking quote like charlie chapman unquote according to a witness statement it's interesting to me that and i mean you'll get even more into it but how much planning went into this but they didn't realize like things that the bank had in place, like you guys were talking about. I mean, this was 2003, so maybe there were like less rules than there are now about the amounts and the tills and stuff. But even so, wouldn't you study maybe that a little bit before going to all this trouble and all this planning to get, what was it, $8,700? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would think what? so. <laughs> Do better. <laughs> Yeah, criminals do a better job at being criminals. <laughs> so around 2.55-ish, um, kind of guessing on that time, it's described as being 15 minutes after the robbery. So going with about 2.40, the robbery having occurred, um, the police show up. So the directions that Wells was given, remember that nine-page sheet of directions he had, told him to go to the McDonald's and find a note that was placed on the underside of a rock near the drive through 24-hour sign on the property. Because nothing is more inconspicuous than a dude rooting around in the McDonald's foliage to look under a rock and find a note. Um, from there, he read that note and it directed him to go up Peach Street again to a wooded area, but before he was able to complete that task, he was pulled over by PSP in the parking lot of Eyeglass World, um, which you could still see the PNC bank from the parking lot of. Um, so it really wasn't very far. He did not make it very far in the plan. Um, from the clue that was found in the McDonald's shrubbery, he would have wound up near these wooded areas. Um, when investigators followed these clues later on, they did find an orange tape sign with Vietnam and a bunch of numbers written on it. And that clue was mentioned in the instructions that he found in under the rock at McDonald's. Um, now, way back on the other side of the field near where they found that orange marking was a minivan that was coming toward the police. The officer there who 
I'm like 99.99% sure was Lamont King, but I forgot to write it down when I was watching the documentary. Um, he was a part of PSP, uh, stated that it looked like they were going to that same spot, like the van was coming to where they were, but then the van stopped, backed up, and took off. Um, the officer said, quote, he was so far away and we couldn't drive because they were in this dense wooded area. So he basically got away, unquote. Uh, the van was a boxy, dirty colored blue van, but with all of the small clues that came in and out of this case, this one got forgotten for a while, but not forever. Uh, there was also another clue that led to a coffee can about five to 10 yards off the berm of the road um, on, I think, I-90. Uh, but there were no further clues. So while we're talking a little bit about these notes, I want to point out that on the blog, we do have a link to the people.com article that shows images of all the notes. Um, the notes were insanely detailed and very wordy. Like I said before, when I worked at a bank, I was never robbed. But when we had to do robbery trainings, they would use examples of what had actually happened in previous robberies. And the notes were typically like under 15 words. Usually it was just like, give me money. Um, I mean, they were pretty simple notes. Uh, they were often very rushed with poor handwriting and oddly often on ripped up pieces of paper or like index cards. Um, you didn't typically see like a full sheet of paper that had something written on it. Uh, this was not the case for this robbery, however. In total, like I said, there were nine pages of this note. Um, investigators observed that the letter spacing and font type, like handwriting type, seemed to suggest that the notes had been typed on a typewriter and then traced over. Uh, the letters were very consistent. The spacing was really consistent. Um, there was no like drag lines between letters or anything. So they really couldn't find any specific handwriting abnormalities in order to connect any specific person's handwriting to the notes. Linguistically, however, there were a couple things, and I'm not going to go in depth here for the sake of time since we're already going to be going into a second part of this episode. Um, but overall, we can see that the letters are wordy. There are many phrases and directions that are repeated unnecessarily, and there are headings that are indicated by either capital letters or underlined phrases. And any sort of numbered list shows the number followed directly by a right or a closed parenthesis, so like the shift zero key on a keyboard, um, like no period or anything like that, just the number and then that parenthesis symbol. Um, that's going to come back into play a little bit later on. Uh, there was also indented writing over other paper. So like when you write in a notebook and flip the page and you can still see some imprints from what you had written on that last page, um, they did see some of that on some of the notes. Uh, it was really unclear, but they could see some letters and a couple like fragmented words and sentences. So police were able to see these imprints when they investigated the pages, and then that will come back in a bit as well. Um, so sorry, just to be clear, this is the note of instructions for Brian, or is this the note that he handed the teller? all of it um so in total every note that was written made up nine separate pages so part of it was the note that was given to brian part of it was what brian had to give to the teller and the bank manager and the note that was in the mcdonald's rock 
foliage area, all that kind of stuff. But in total, it was nine pages. Um, so once police started investigating this a little bit further, they decided to follow the plan and the steps that were provided to Wells in that nine page document. Now, there was a caveat in there that as Wells completed tasks, he would get more time before the bomb would go off. So like if he completed this, he would get 10 more minutes on his timer, whatever. Um, even given that information, police believe that it was an impossible mission to accomplish in the given time constraints and the rest, and that the rest of the group always intended to sacrifice Wells. So um, whether or not he was involved, the plan all along was likely to have him killed. Um, that was never proven, um, but that's kind of the general thought here. Uh, now, as part of the investigation, Wells was actually surgically decapitated so that the police could get to the collar bomb without having to disassemble it at all because they wanted it in its entirety so that they could look at how it was made to try to figure out maybe who had made it. Um, I mean, I, I get it, but that's, I mean, that's adding insult to quite literal injury in my mind. I mean, that's, that's insane. I remember his family said that they were so upset about mm -hmm. it yeah. that you could tell in the documentary, it was like, you could just tell how hurt they were. I think it was his brother. I haven't watched it in a very long time. I watched it when it first came out. Um, and that's just like, so sad. They base just the way they were talking about him and he was sitting there and like, they couldn't even give him an ounce of like humanity before, you know, it did go off and it just really yeah. fucking sucks just for the fact, like you don't know until you are convicted, everyone, all these criminals get all these leniencies. They have no idea. And it just really sucks. Like the whole entire thing was just so sad to watch. And for the fact that they showed the footage, it was, it was kind of bone chilling. And the yeah. poor guy didn't get any freaking humanity at all. Not before his death at his death and after his death yeah. they didn't give a shit i'm i'm right there with you um we do have the family statement um i mean i didn't speak to the family but like the statement that they gave from the uh, documentary i did type out part of it um that we will read a little bit in part two of this episode um but yeah they were not happy about that at all because they weren't consulted at all it was just a decision that the coroner made um, and that the investigators made, they weren't, the family was not consulted at all, which is horrible. And kind of adding on to that, when Wells was arrested, he was told to sit down on the ground and he complied. I mean, they told him to do this, do that, stay on the ground, sit here, handcuff him. And he just said, okay, that's fine. Like he did not fight back at all. Um, now, this is where he starts telling the story about having a list of treasure hunt activities to complete. The first of the items on the list being the robbery, as outlined in that nine-page document that we talked about earlier. Um, he tells the police, as he was instructed to do, that three Black men forced him to do this at gunpoint. Uh, they didn't believe that. Um, there's, in the documentary, uh, Lamont King, which is the PSP officer, was like, yeah, no, we know that that wasn't the case, but we didn't know what the truth actually was. We just knew that he was feeding us a lie that either he came up with or he had been told. So, um, 
that's what he stuck to for the time being. Um, of course, since this took place in 2003, there were news crews there as soon as the call went into 911. Um, and many news sources were reporting the footage. Like Chelsea said, you can see the actual footage if you watch the documentary. Um, and it's, it's not too graphic because they show it from far away, but it's still, I mean, like I have a very high tolerance for graphic things and it kind of turned my stomach. So, um, just word of, word of caution. Uh, but one of the cameras did pick up Wells saying, quote, maybe you can get the keys, get me out of this thing. I don't know if I have enough time. I'm not lying. It's going to go off. Um, and police secured the area and got bystanders out of the way in case anything did detonate. Um, and then they made sure that he could not detonate the bomb himself before calling the bomb squad. Um, and for this episode, we are going to stop right there. Um, leave you on a little bit of a cliffhanger, even though within the next week before we release part two, you can go find all the answers. But um, we will come back with a second episode next week and hopefully finish up this case. I know it's crazy. It's long. Uh, there's a lot of moving pieces and different parts to it, but um, we will be back next week with the rest of this case. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Sarah. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. The music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out. <laughs>